Well, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 32 all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 5, 11. Um, one of the regular practices here at Redeemer is to preach verse by verse through Scripture, uh, through specific books of the Bible. Um, since we have started as a church, we've preached through Ruth, we've preached through Malachi, we've preached through Jonah, um, and now we're preaching through Acts. At least until the end of chapter 12, we will pause, preach something different, and then come back and finish the second part of Acts. And we've, um, we've made it to about six or seven sermons in now to the book of Acts. And just a way of summarizing what has occurred so far through the book of Acts, just pretty quickly here. Um, very first and foremost, we saw the ascension of Christ at the end of Luke, which was the first book that the author of Acts wrote, which was Luke. And Luke is now um, writing the second book to this individual named Theopolis. And in writing this book to Theopolis, he, he ends with, uh, he begins in the very beginning of his book, this promise of the Holy Spirit and the ascension of Christ back into heaven. And then from there we see uh, this preparation of the Holy Spirit by the disciples and the other believers uh, in replacing Judas with another one that had been with them from the beginning. And then we see the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, which led to this sermon on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 souls come to Christ in salvation. Then from there we see this lame man gets healed outside of the beautiful gate of the temple which then leads Peter and John into uh, the temple to go to Solomon's portico, where Peter then preaches again. This is all in chapter 3. And he preaches. And as he preaches, um, the religious leaders of the day and time kind of get um, a little flustered and mad and jealous and all of these different things. And so they arrest them. And in arresting them, they stand before trial of these other religious leaders, the high priest and the high priestly family, and standing before trial of them. There's nothing that they can do to these men. Why? Because this lame man that had been lame for about 40 years was standing with them. So there was evidence in the lame man standing there. So there was nothing they could do except for charge them to not speak in the name of or to preach the name of Christ. Where Peter and John, with boldness, then say, You have to judge for yourself if that is right for us to do, but we can not but not speak the gospel. So they continue to preach the gospel, but then they go on and they leave immediately from there and they find their uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and then they begin to pray for boldness together as a body of believers. And that's what we looked at last week which led us to praying together before we left uh, our time uh, together worshiping. And then this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 32, and we're going to see a continuation of this same idea going on that's already been just highlighted multiple times throughout this book, and it's really the fact that there is unity within the body of Christ in this early church. And we're going to see really, really what causes this unity this morning, and what we're going to see it, we're going to see it in kind of two ways this morning. We're going to see unity in grace, but we're also going to see unity in fear. Or we could say unity in awe. 
of the holiness of God. So we're going to see unity in grace, and we're going to see unity in the fear of the Lord, or the awe of the holiness of God. And so, before we get into that, what we saw last week is this commitment of prayer in the life of the early church. And one thing that I highlighted in that is that a true living church is not only uh, it's one that is committed to praying together, but this morning what we're going to see is that a true living church is not only one that commits to praying together, as we saw last week, but it's also one where God's grace and holiness is rightly understood and applied. And in applying these two things, what we have is unity. And so let's read it all together. Starting in verse 32, um, I'm not sure if Troy's going to throw it on the screen or not. Um, if so, you can follow along there. If not, I encourage you to look on a phone or a physical copy of God's Word. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and one, no one said that any of the things and belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each of as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man, man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath, and great fear came upon those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of time, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed, agreed to take together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who carried, who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. Believing and knowing that you are a God that has revealed your word to people throughout time through the Spirit of God. 
God, we trust that this word is from you. And so we pray now that we would look at it in such a way that would cause us to ask the question, what would this have meant to, to this individual Theopolis? And, and asking that, Father, we would then do the work of applying it to our lives. God, not first asking what it means to us, Father, because there's much shame and beaten down and just the lack of rest that could come from verses like this. But Father, what we did know to be true is that you are a good Father that loves us, but not only loves us, but demands, holy, demands our respect and fear of your holiness. But Father, you have shown us much grace, even when we lack that. We pray this in your Son's holy name. Amen. This morning, as I said earlier, we're going to really look at these two ideas of, of grace, unity in grace, and unity in fear. And for both of those, we're going to look at a personal example of what that looked like in the early church. We're going to look at unity of, in grace and unity in fear, and we're going to see examples of each of them. But what I want to see and say just for in the front end of all of this is when you read these set of verses, if you don't look at it in the context, if you don't try to seek to understand what's going on here, it just seems odd. Not only odd, but it also just seems off-putting, right? That these individuals, this husband and wife, they sell a piece of land, they give it to the church for the needy people within their community, and they end up dying because they just didn't give all of it. It's what you would have first and foremost assume. But what we're going to see through this is that there's much more at stake and there's much more behind the mindset of Ananias and Sapphira than it was just them keeping part of the money of their proceeds. And what we see in that is that regardless of a weird and hard situation to understand, God worked in glorifying himself and growing his people together. And so... First and foremost, we're going to look at 32 through 35, and we're going to see this unity in grace. He says this in 32. Well, let's begin in the end of verse 33, and he says these words, And great grace was upon them all. Then if you flip over to verse 11, you hear a very similar language by Luke. It says, And a great fear came upon them, a great grace and a great fear. Luke is an intelligent individual. Luke is an historian. He is writing this as an historian. So he's using his language specifically and intentionally to tie these two stories together in such a way that we can look at them and understand not only what was going on in the early church, but some examples of those things. And so Luke, intentionally writing it this way, he begins by saying, and a great grace was upon them all. So let's look at what this great grace led to. Starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number of those who believed were of. Now we're going to pause there, the full number. And so what we see in this is that around 5,000 individuals we saw in previous verses in chapter 4 had come to know Christ. Now we don't know historically if that's just addressing the men or the men and the women or the men, women and children. We're not as certain about that. We know in other cases in New Testament writing that when they speak of numbers, they're only counting men. So maybe it's 5,000, maybe it's more, but we know there's large number of individuals have come to know Christ and they're now all together. They're all together, this large group of individuals. And if I look in this room, I see about 21, 22 people, uh, 23 maybe. I'm not, I haven't counted. I don't know. I'm just guessing. 
And if I asked if any of us had need, I'm certain that there would probably be some of us with some need or some difficulty or some hardship. Maybe even things that we haven't shared with one another or maybe things as some of us may not know each other. Maybe there's things that we just wouldn't want to bring out in a setting like this. And no matter if you look at any church in America right now or anywhere in the country, in the, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, we don't see this same principle applied most of the time. We're a group of 5,000 or greater individuals or of one heart and one soul, and none of them considered their own things their own, but they had all things in common. This was miraculous. This was a work of the Spirit in the life of the people. I mean, if nothing else, we could look at our society over the last four to five years and see that the division and the disruptions and all of the, the issues where people are separating over things after thing after thing. We see it within the church, where if it be political things or if it be social things or whatever the case may be, there's separation, right? We, we feel this in our world. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that these people had all things in common. This isn't an embellishment. This is a reality of the work of the Spirit in the life of the early church. They're of one heart and one soul. And they're living and working together. So first and foremost, we see this great grace led to this commonality between the people that honestly, if we're going to be real about it, we just don't understand today. And we think that maybe, just maybe, this made more sense in a day and age like this, but I would argue that this is a day and age where the Roman Empire ruled. And biblically speaking, it was no more Christianized than any other country that we've seen. It was no more moral or less moral but these body of believers were committed together under the grace of the Lord. And what it led to was this commonality that went beyond earthly things. And it was greater than anything we could see and hear now. Why? Because it was a work of the Spirit in the life of the people. That because of Christ. How do I know it's because of Christ? Look in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that this, uh, this preaching and teaching of the, God, the apostles, this recalling of the apostles, it was grounded in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because that's where their commonality started. It started in the one whom they believed in. It started in the one whom they trusted in. Because these were people of Jewish descent. So these were people that before coming to know Jesus, they would have grew up in the cultural and time of sacrifices and all of these religious practices that caused them to look towards someone else. But what we see in this is they're looking back at what has been accomplished in Christ. And this morning, in just a little while, we're going to do the same thing as we take communion together. And we're going to look back at what Christ has done for us. We're going to look at the fact that the body is represented in the bread and it represents the body that was broken for us. We're going to look at the, the, the juice that was poured out and its representation of the blood of Christ that was poured out on behalf of those who would believe and trust in him. The disciples was keeping the, the core thing, the core thing, and that was Christ and his resurrection. They were holding on to what brought them grace upon grace upon grace. 
So they have this commonality through the, the work of the Spirit in their life. But what led them to remembering this and seeking this day in and day out was the preaching of Christ. Then verse 34. He kind of is going back to verse 32 and explaining this in a little more detail. But I want to look at this in a little different way. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought their proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each of them as they had need. So there's two things going on here. I want to hit the, 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 the least important one first and foremost is we see this leadership of the apostles within the church. It began by the teaching of God's word and now we see it at the distributing of funds to provide for those who are in need. In just a few weeks, Troy's going to preach and he's going to look at um, he's going to look at Acts chapter six, and we're going to see this is going to change slightly. Where this role of deacons seem to implement the church, implemented within the church, where they're providing for the needs of the people. So this role of providing is going to shift a little bit. But as of right now, we see the leadership within the apostles over the church, and now these funds are being distributed uh, from them to people. All right, so that's the low note. The high note here, though, the most important thing here is that great grace transcends the social and economical statuses of this day. Now, in the book of Acts, we're going to see where it certainly is going to transcend the racial divide between Jew and Gentile and Jew and Greek and slave and free. We're going to, we're going to get into that in the book of Acts. But right here, we see that it's going to transcend the social and economical differences between these people. Why? How do we see that? It says there was not a needy person in there among them. One that had need would have been those of the poor class. And we can't really categorize them in three systems as we so often do in our modern day. But there was these people of need. They were poor individuals that had come to know Christ, but none of them had need. Why did they not have need? It's because the owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet to distribute to any who had need. That the grace that was offered through Christ transcended everything that the society told them about each other. That it transcended their own wealth and their own possessions. Why? Because if their brothers and sisters were in Christ were in need, they were going to provide for them. The grace that they had found in Christ caused them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Just as Christ commanded his people. And we see this lived out in a very physical way. Now we're going to get to this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This was not a mandate of the early church that they would have to sell their possessions and give to the church. This would have been something they would have freely done for the people whom they cared for. This wasn't a mandate. There wasn't a specific number they had to give. So much so that when you look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it just when you look at Sapphira's response, Peter asked, did you sell it for so-and-so amount? So they didn't even emphasize how much was given or how much it was sold for because the amount of money was not important. It was going to be the heart in which they gave. And so I wanted to say that on the front end because when you look at this and you look at people that would have an ideology of communism or anything of that nature, this is where they would go to some kind of biblical proof. And this is where you can almost take and twist it into something that it's not. But what it very simply is, is those who received grace and a great grace from the Lord through Christ could not 
bear to watch their brothers and sisters in Christ in some kind of need without intervening for them. So much so that they were willing to sell their homes and their land to provide for them. So there's also an importance in selling those two things because in this day and age, just no different, no different than our now modern day, part of their wealth was considered in what they owned. And so they freely sold these things to give to their brothers and sisters in Christ that were in need. So that's what's going on. So when you look at 32 through verse 11 of chapter 5, that's really the whole thing going on. But then he gives two examples to make this make sense to Theopolis. The first example, as you saw earlier, was a positive example. And the second example was a negative example. And so the first example, though, is what we're going to be looking at this morning is a personal example of the unity that is now in grace. And he says, thus, in looking at verse 36, thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite native to Cyprus. So Barnabas is one that we're going to look at multiple times throughout the book of Acts. Barnabas is a significant individual in the life of the church. Um, and this is the introduction of who he is. I think it would speak volumes to see what he would do in the future to see what he did in this moment before he became well-known or big. Barnabas, just a call to remember just a few things about him. He's the one whom when Paul, after he had converted to Christ after some years, vouched for him and said, this is a brother in Christ, though he may have been known as Saul, the one that persecuted Christians, I attest for him. Barnabas was the one who traveled with Paul in multiple missionary journeys. Barnabas is the one who encouraged Paul to reconcile when he and another brother in Christ had differences. Barnabas is one that lives up his name well, son of encouragement. This is who this person is. It's Barnabas. It's the one that we see throughout the book of Acts. But what did Barnabas do? It says he sold a field that belonged to him. Very simple. We don't know what field. We don't know how big it was. We don't know how much it was worth. Because none of those things are important. What we're looking at is the heart of the individual here. It says he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He's surrendering it to the leadership of the apostles, the leadership of the church, and he's trusting that they're going to do what God desired to do with this money to provide for those who are in need. He willingly offered this up to the church so that they could provide for those who were in need. Okay, This was the purpose of why Barnabas did this, because he loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was known to some extent or another because Luke knew about it. But then when you look at the second example, we're going to see something slightly different going on here. So Barnabas is this good example. And why is it good? Because out of love for brother and sister in Christ, what does he do? Sells what he had, gives it to them so they can be taken care of. He's somewhat healthy uh, and wealthy. He provides for these people in need. So we see in a personal example of this unity and grace, it's a specific individual known as Joseph or Barnabas who sold what he had to give to those who are in need. Now we're going to see this idea of unity in fear. But before we move on from the unity of grace, 
what I want to say in first and foremost is that we as believers should be known as people who have grace for others. We should be known as people who love individuals. We should be known as people who take care of those who are in need. We should be known as people who show much grace. Why? Because we have been shown a greater grace than anything we can do for those around us. We as believers in Christ should be people who show much grace and mercy to those around us, not only in just personal lives, but in our occupations, in our parenting, within, you know, within our marriages. Because as we show grace to others, what that does, and I'm hoping I'm not using this term too lightly and too often, is when we show grace to those around us, it softens their heart for the gospel to penetrate and to reach them so that they would believe upon the Jesus whom they preached the resurrection of, but also so that we as a body of believers and as Christians that are fellowshipping together, if it be in a setting like this or in between different churches or between just believers that go to different churches, what it should cause us to do is find the commonality in Christ that goes beyond everything else that is going on in our world. Because in the end of it all, if we have been saved by Christ, redeemed by him, and, re and now have resurrection of life through him, that one day we will spend an eternity together, then our differences do not matter that much. We should be people because we have received a great grace that has a great grace. But the funny thing about grace is grace can be mistreated. Grace could be something that we've seen throughout Scripture and we certainly see in our modern day. Grace is something that is taken and twisted into something that is not. And it's essentially taken and twisted into a way of sinning without a fear of the correction of God in our lives. And the reality here is we're going to see that in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to see this unity in fear and the reason why I would say all of holiness of God is because this fear is not simply I fear um, a fear of spiders or a fear of crashing or a fear of failing or a fear of clowns or a fear of heights or a fear of drowning. It's a reverent and all of who someone else is. So it's a fear of God because God is a holy God and he is one to be feared because of his holiness. He is one to be acknowledged for who he is. And so what we're going to see in this second part is this unity in the fear of the Lord, this unity in the awe of the holiness of God, because God does not let sinners go unchecked. Now, we may not see an extreme, extreme examples of this in our day and age, where it's almost like cutting off a light switch when these men, this man and this woman lose their life. We may not see examples of that today, but we certainly see that God does not let sinners go unchecked. He does not let our sin go unchecked. Hebrews tells us that if we are people that have trusted in Christ, then we're children of God. And children of God are corrected by the Father. And if they're not corrected by the Father, they're fatherless children. Therefore, they are not His. For those who have trusted in Jesus, we should be corrected by the Father. Certainly, it's going to result in death because I do not believe that that's what's going on here. 
But I would say this very simply, is that we should look at this verse and we should not see this as some mythological moment and this life of the church where God seemingly did something, but maybe not exactly what he says here. This was a moment that God took his holiness seriously and two people died because they lied to him. They took grace and they took it too far. Let's look at it together. Starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it, only part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're going to pause there before we get into the two stories of Ananias and Sapphira. So knowingly, he, this individual, this man, he sells a piece of property. He and his wife, both aware of this transaction, he, he sells it. And he takes the money, his wife's knowledge is there, he takes the money, he gives part of it to the church, part of it to the needy, part of it to the apostles to be distributed to those who were in need. And what it's not explaining to you quite yet, and I'm going to get there, it's very simply so that you can understand it a little bit better. It's not as if he took all of the money that he received and gave it to the church. But what he did was he took part of it and he gave it. But he gave it in such a way that he was probably, I want to say that very loosely, probably taking credit for giving all of his money for those who were in need. That he was taking and he was laying it down at the feet of the apostles. And it's not as if he only gave part of it knowingly, but he gave part of it pridefully, seeking to be like Barnabas. But the difference is Barnabas lays it all at the feet of the apostles where this man and this wife lay a portion of it, claiming to lay all of it. Let's look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not for your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias sows this part of land, partial of land. And Peter uses this phrase, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is an interesting phrase. It's one that we hear another time in Luke's writing, in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Luke 22, verse 3, where he says this. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. It's the only other time we hear a phrase like this. And at that point, he's talking about Judas, the betrayer. Judas, the one that would turn in the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. So he's a similar comparison here. A similar comparison to that of Judas. Because Judas was going against the will of God by turning in the Savior. And Ananias and Sapphira are doing the same thing. And what we're going to see here is there's an inward attack of Satan. Uh, uh, there's an inward attack against the church through the work of Ananias and Sapphira. But there's also an external attack of the church, and that is through Satan working in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. 
So Ananias, to some extent, was led into temptation by Satan, but he is uh, responsible just as well because he is one that has chose this sin. Satan did not force him, but he chose to sin in this way. He says, why in your heart you were filled to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back portions of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Very simple. Before you sold it, was it not your land? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Could you not do with it what you wanted to do with it? Could you not give a portion or not a portion and acknowledge that? Or you didn't even have to give any of it. But then he says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. What Peter is making clear to Ananias in this moment is that his lie, seemingly, seemingly this lie of supposedly giving all of the proceeds to the needs of the church, gave a portion of it claiming to be better than he was. And he wasn't lying to the apostles. He wasn't lying to the needy. He wasn't lying to those who were um, around him. He was lying to God. Why was he lying to God and not those around him? It's because this was a community of believers that was grounded and depended upon the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So in lying to the church, he lied to the Spirit of God. And in doing this, we see the result of it. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Verse 6. It's just some young men in the church, not professionals. It's just some young men in the church that made it quick deed of this. Probably because they feared the Lord to continue on. They feared that the, the wrath of God would continue on the church if they kept this man there. So in fear of what God could continue to do, they took this man, they buried him really quickly. And it says, and after an interval of three hours, his wife came in. So Ananias drops dead. Why? Because he lied to the Spirit of God. But we see in verse 7 this wonderful, wonderful picture of the grace that we talked about before. We see a wonderful picture of the mercy of God, the gospel of Christ, in the way that they operated as a church. So Ananias, dead. Wife comes in three hours later. Verse 7, not knowing what had happened. So Sapphira comes into the room, not knowing what happened to her husband, unaware of his death, unaware of his burial. She comes and she talks to Peter. Most likely the other apostles are around, not just Peter. She talks to him. But I want you to understand in this, if this woman would have known what had occurred to her husband, her response would have been vastly different because there would have been a fear of the Lord that had come in the actions of the Lord in judging her husband. But instead, we see this grace of God displayed in her ignorance. The grace of God displayed in her ignorance because she's unaware of what's going on. And in verse 8, it says, And Peter said to her, 
She's unaware. Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So he gives her the opportunity. There's grace displayed here that she has now the opportunity to own up to it. Or maybe, just maybe, because this day and time is a little different than now, just maybe she was an unwilling participant in this transaction. And so now she has the opportunity to own up to what had happened. No, Peter, we didn't sell it for this much. We actually sold it for this much. And my husband, you know, he, he made me uh, agree to, sell, to selling it for this much. And we knew that he knew he was trying to, to trick you guys and trick God. No, that's not what occurs, though. She's offered this opportunity to come clean, to be open and honest about the sin in her life, in her husband's life. And what does she say? And yes, for so much. Like I said earlier, we don't know how much, because that's not the point. The point's not about the money. It's not even about giving. It's about the sin that led them to lying to the Spirit of God. So she says, yeah, we sold it for that much. This speaks to the volume of this being about the lie that led to the death of both of these individuals because they were claiming to sell it for a certain amount of money because they were seeking the godliness and the respect of the people. But they actually sold it for a different amount. In verse 9, But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This woman is offered the, the grace of God to repent of her sins, to turn from her wickedness, to look towards Christ, to trust in the Spirit, to lean into the body of Christ. But what does she do instead? She goes the same path of her husband. She continues to lie, to go deeper into sin. So often this is how sin infiltrates her own hearts and minds. That for those often that do not trust in Jesus, they're unaware of their sin, so they dig deeper and harder into the sin that has plagued them, running from Christ, running from God. So my plea to anyone that would be in a moment like that, my prayer would be simply that you would recognize as we sing in that second song, that God is the one who takes brokenness aside and turns it into something wonderful and great. God is the one that takes our sin and turns it into something that would lead us to the Father and lead us through the Son by the Spirit of God to trust in Him. That would cause us to understand rightly that there's a perfect and holy God that we're accountable to. And because we have sinned and turned away from Him, we're deserving of His wrath and judgment just like Ananias and Sapphira received here. But in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins for those who trust in him. But for the believer, we so often do this same thing. That we tend to lie or we tend to put whatever sin you want to put there. I'm going to use lie as an example because this was specifically their sin in this moment. Pridefulness, arrogance. That they lied in this moment. And instead of turning away from their sin when they're uh, they're faced firsthand with it, directly with it, 
What do they do? They dig their hills in deeper and they go deeper into sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot be those people. We cannot be people that live in unrepented sin because we're unwilling to remove that sin from our lives. There's certainly a judgment and a wrath of God that will be displayed in the correction of God in our lives. I would argue here possibly that Ananias and Sapphira were a part of the church, but they were not truly a part of Christ's church. What I mean by that is that this judgment of God is on them. Maybe they're believers, maybe they're not. But we saw that God is certainly doing something in their example. And what he did there was he made his holiness aware to those around. Look at verse 11. It says, A great fear came upon the whole church, but not only the whole church, but it says, Upon all who heard these things. So the church and those outside of the church A great fear came upon them. Why did a great fear come upon them? Because God's holiness was revealed through the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And what I want to say this morning is as we look at this scripture, we can be just like Theopolis and understand that we do not have to go through a similar circumstances to understand the holiness of God. We can look at this set of scriptures and understand rightly that God killed these two individuals because he is holy and they were not. And he was in the right to do so. Why? Because he is a holy God that can judge sinners. God is one that is gracious and loving by all means. We saw the grace of God on display in the unity of the people, but the fear of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord, led to a similar unity, and it's because they understood rightly that God was also holy. We cannot be people that focus so much on the grace of God that we miss the holiness of God. When we do that, we become a big word called antinomianism, which means that we focus on the grace of God more than the holiness of God, more than the law. So therefore, we live as if we want to live and claim forgiveness in Christ. That we live a Hellenistic lifestyle, and God will certainly forgive us because He is a gracious and loving God. But if we focus so much on the holiness of God, the law of God, and we miss the grace of God, we become legalists that then seek to do all the right things and do and ignore and avoid all the wrong things and simply so that God would love us because we earned it. There is a balance here between the holiness of God and the grace of God. And in this example of the early church, we see both of them at play and they both accomplish the same thing and that is the unity of the believer. So very simply put, church... Let us be people that lean into the grace of God, but recognize the holiness of God. So we are people that seek the redemption of Christ, first in salvation, but secondly, continually, through the body of believers that he has placed around us. That we would focus on the preaching of Christ's resurrection, that we would focus on the unity that could come with believers And as other places would explain to us, specifically the book of James, that we would confess our sins to one another, we would turn away from them, and we would trust in Christ. God is a gracious God. 
But God is a holy God. We cannot separate the two. And when we do, is when we mess it all up. And now, as we're going to transition to our time in communion, we're going to see a perfect example of the grace and holiness of God on display. What I mean by that is in the moment in which Christ was nailed to a cross, beforehand beaten to an inch of his life, essentially, nailed upon a cross, raced up before the town for everyone to see. We see the grace of God displayed that for the sake of sinners, for the sake of those who could not save themselves, for the sake of those who had turned away from God, that had no means of saving themselves, Christ was raised up, His body was broken, His blood was poured out by the grace of God. But also, the wrath of God was displayed too. Because sin could not go unchecked. So the Father, from eternity past, planned for His Son, the eternal Son of God, be the incarnated Son of God that would be placed on a cross, a sinless, perfect man that would have the wrath of God poured out upon him, that would justify his wrath. Why? So that the grace of God could be displayed. God is a God that takes his holiness so seriously because it is his nature that the only way to save sinners like you and I was for him himself to take on that death.